a listener production. This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Having spent the bulk of my career working with leading brands, it was enormously exciting for me to sit down with the creative genius that is Dare Jennings. And what a delight to discover he is every bit as charming, engaging and inspiring as his work had led me to hope he would be. So Dare, welcome to Five of My Life. But more importantly, mate, welcome to the exclusive Sixer Club. That's the group of people who we invite on because other of our guests say they really want to hear their five. And you were chosen by Remo. Remo is an old mate. I've known him. Wow. I chased him down in New York when he was uh, living in New York and he, he had a law degree. And, but he was a great sort of a very strange illustrator. Someone introduced me. And I was in New York. I found him sitting you know, on the corner of Broadway and something. And, uh, and we've sort of been friends ever since when, when he came home again. In fact, I'm the, the godfather of his daughter. Ah. I've done an incredible job because she's inc- hugely successful. No, and, and of course, I haven't done a damn thing. I'm a complete failure as a godparent. <laughs> are, are you religious? No, no, not at all. I'm there to make sure that her atheistic views are held held up. Kept intact. Yeah. Good on you, mate. Uh, right, we're going to start with your film, which is traditional, and you've chosen the 1979 uh, war classic, Apocalypse Now, the only film that I can uh, do in charades because the helicopter sign is uh, universally known. Uh, tell us why you've chosen that, dear. I was a bit worried because I thought everyone would choose that, wouldn't they? No. Isn't Apocalypse f- Now the best movie in the world? Well, because ah. that's why I chose it. Um, well, no, there, look, there's a whole raft of reasons why I've, I've picked it. First of all, it was made in the late 70s and, you know, the, the, the embers in Vietnam were still, still smoking at that point. And I was, uh, I was at university in the late 60s and we were drafted. Like we were, the, the draft existed in Australia. You were personally drafted? No, I wasn't, but we, I could have been. Right. <laughs> um, there, was a, there was a draft and most of those people who ended up in the army through conscription, ended up in Vietnam. When you consider three million people died in Vietnam, so it was no joke. I wasn't called up. There was a ballot where they took marbles out of a box and if your birthday was on that, you got called up. Terrifying. Terrifying, indeed. If you're a tough guy, you refuse to register. That meant you're immediately a criminal. If if you're a less of a tough guy, you wait and saw if your name came up and then you could sort of resist. But lucky for me, I didn't have to bother with that. So anyway, in the late 70s, this movie comes out, and it's an extraordinary movie. I, I just was speaking to, uh, well, James Valentine, who we were just talking about. His, he and his son just watched it the other day, his 90-year-old son who's doing media of some kind. And he said, it's, it's incredible because they, everything in that is real. There is no CGI. There's no, there's no blue screen. There's no everything. They built the buildings and blew them up. So everything is in the camera, and when you consider it from in that from that point of view, it's it's an amazing movie. The movie itself is based on Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, so the story arc is the same. 
So it's a big, it's a big idea. But when I started Mambo in the 80s, we took Apocalypse Now as our sort of sacred movie and it shows up in all manner of different ways through all the great expressions that come out of uh, Apocalypse Now weave their way into the products and the advertising. I remember we, we had, a, we had a, a sponsor to Surfer who was a really nice guy, but he wasn't very flamboyant or anything. So we, we created this whole advertising campaign where it sort of morphed into Apocalypse Now and he crossed over into the northern beaches and was followed by people who, you know, listened to whatever crazy idea he had. And, I mean, and there was all of that, but, you know, the whole idea of the warrior poet, that was important to us. We kept on, you know, we, we were blokey but intelligent blokes, so... That was, you know, all all of these lines that just kept on coming out of uh, out of Apocalypse Now. Um, you know, there, there's the famous ones, Charlie Don't Surf, and um, all, I can you know, love the smell of napalm in the morning. But there, there were many other ones as well. And then I used to know all these other people who they, they literally they were complete nerds for the film, and they would sit around discussing. There's a scene where a young Harrison Ford is a, is an officer to the general and they're describing what, what Willard's got to do and there's a point where he's describing it and he goes into a half cough. He goes, your mission if you <coughs> choose. These guys are sitting around doing the half cough. That's how, that's how obsessed they were with this, the wonder of Apocalypse Now. It's like Monty Python and the parrot sketch. Yeah, they would, people would sit around doing that ad nauseum because that was like what it was all about. And to tell us about yourself politically at Sydney Uni. Were you a firebrand or? Um, yeah, I, well, I was certainly, um, I was say we're all left-wing. No, we weren't all left-wing, but, but we were all out there demonstrating. And again, I, I can't uh, uh, stress enough how it was no joke. We were, getting, we were getting drafted. The Vietnam War was real, you know, like people were getting killed. And so we resisted that. But it was at the same era as the, the weathermen and um, you know student resistance all over the world, and it, it was a it was a big thing. And I, I came out of all of that. Um, that was very much what I was. Later on, when I ended up with a printing factory, I had like it was a real industry, employing about 50, 60 people. One day, the guy from the textile workers union came and said, "You don't have a union here." And I said, "Well, I'm okay with the union. You guys want to come in there, but there's a lot of Vietnamese working here. A lot of." A lot of rock and rollers who, they're not real interested. He goes, no, mate, I'm telling you, what you're going to do, you're going to give them all the pay rise, pay for their union dues, and that way the, the textile, the PKIU, which are that really bad union, oh, they, you won't, they won't be able to come here. So see it as an insurance policy. I was going, come on, I'm, you know, like I'm a, I'm a, and then I'd go to the, the Vietnamese who are working there and they say, he's, they're communists, they're communists. And I go, they're not communists. You know, all, all your conditions came from the stuff that they, oh, yeah. it just sort of went on and on. So yeah, that, but that was, all grew out of that, those university years of uh, resistance. Well, we're moving from the 70s to the 90s for your second choice on Five of My Life, uh, and I'm fascinated to hear you talk about this choice, mate, because you've chosen Snake, uh, written by your sister Kate. Yes, Tell us why. Well, well, tell us about the book first and then why. I, I emailed you saying, mate, is this based on your family? Uh, yeah, well... My sister was a was a, a well known writer. She edited books of poetry. She was a poet. She wrote a lot of articles, but her first book was Snake. And like every good author, they have to kind of settle all their scores with their family. And my this is and this was really what this was. Now, and I was completely torn because on one hand, it's a beautifully written book, and you know she. 
it, it was said that she, it was on the shortlist for the Booker Prize shortlist. It was yes. being considered for the Booker Prize shortlist. So it, it was a very well respected. It was a very tight. It was a, it's more prose than um, like a straight novel, but uh, it was beautifully written and incredibly heartfelt. But it was fucking mean. Like it was so. My mother, in particular, because my sister and I, my sister and her, my mother never got on. I, I got on wonderfully with my mother, but um, so she portrays this incredibly unhappy, vicious sort of cruel, woman. yes, yeah, oh. cruel woman, which was completely undeserved. And she, but my mother used to read the bulletin from cover to cover, and I didn't want her to read the book because you know, it, was, it was too horrible. But the, the opening paragraph of the review for the book was, this is an amazing book and it features one of the most despicable women in Australian literary history yeah. or something. My poor mother it broke her heart. It was, it was terrible. You can pick me in there because I'm the vacuous, no ideas, younger brother. So, Gosh, so your mu- uh, your mum's no longer with us? No, they, no. she passed away. Yeah. Uh, um, what was the family's reaction when it hit, oh, the, hit the-, the... Everyone was horrified and... and and everything in it, you know, just about everything is identifiable as what we did. I was conflicted because this amazing book written about my family, but on the other hand, it was just despicable the way how cruel she was to the people in it. But it's very normal for authors to do this. They, their first book is always settling scores. So, so I, I, I mean, I wrote a book nowhere near as successful as Snake, uh, uh, but I was bent over backwards to make the only person who looked bad be me because I was terrified of making, you know, my mum or my brother, is did your mum and sister reconcile? Did they make no, up? never. Uh, n- That's no. so sad. Yeah, no, it, it really is. And, um, you know, it's just something I, you know, it's been just something she's made her life, a lot of her writing with to do. And it, and it's what is kind of extraordinary is that my sister was famous as a groundbreaking feminist in the 60s and 70s, and yet... Couldn't you give your mum a bit of slack you yeah. know, kind of in terms of what she grew up with and what she, you know, the stuff that she had gone through, but sadly not. Her latest book she, is very autobiographical as well. I mean, it seems to be a, a theme in her work, dealing with her husband having Alzheimer's and all that stuff. She tends to write about things she knows about, but, you know, which is, but she is a very good writer. There is no two ways about it. And, and, and are you guys close to spite at all? Or? Well, you know, we're, I'm turning 70 on the weekend. And Congratulations. She's, she's in a... Wait till I get there. Still, uh, still only Tuesday. Um, <laughs> but the uh, she is seventy two or seventy three. Look, we we get on, but I'm you know it's 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 not it's a bit fractious, right? And and then tell us a little bit about you as a as a kid. So so I, I I've obviously got the wrong impression from that book, but as in a happy childhood, do you think or? Um, you know, we were a rural family. We had, we we were my first twelve years were on an orchard outside of Griffith, and my my grandfather started the prune industry in Australia. Interestingly enough, and then when I was twelve, we my father got a soldier's settler's block in an area called Colliamberley, and it was like a seven eight hundred acre uh, irrigation farm. We grew. My father was an overachieving, very ambitious farmer, and sadly, I wasn't. <laughs> And he, um, God bless him, but he's a wonderful man. But, yeah, he just loved farming. And, of course, our whole family sort of disintegrated around him. So I, I spent most of my youth in a rural environment. People ask me, well, what did you get from being brought up in a rural environment? I say, a never-ending sense of doom. <laughs> like, it to be, the city people cannot understand just how harsh life is on a farm. It's just 
the the exposure to everything you know from from government banks and um uh, through to locust plagues and droughts and floods and disease and livestock and plant i mean it's just it's it is quite incredible and to be a farmer you've got to really want to do it and 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 I mean, you, amazing, um, I mean, career's the wrong word, just an amazing set of achievements in something that couldn't, things that couldn't be further away from farming. I mean, whether it's Phantom Records, Mambo or Deus, so you go, it, 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 you sort of went to the other end of the uh, the spectrum. Yeah, well, I mean, I literally, I ran, basically, because yes. I just knew I had to get out of there. Well, you know, going to university was the w- w- was the thing that got me out, but... My poor dad was because you, you got to understand my, my parents they survived the depression they survived the Second World War so they had this kind of fundamental view of how you got to lead your life like don't take chances get ahead as much as you can and we grew up in the you know there I'm a teenager in the sixties and just bloody couldn't care less about anything and my, and my my dad was convinced he would have to feed me like he's never going to be able to feed himself like he's hopeless he used to call me. Bob Hope's young brother, no hope. <laughs> but, that was, but that was the attitude of those guys. They got through by the skin of their teeth and we were just coasting like we were not, you know, everything was going to be fine for us. So we're going to go to the 70s for your third choice. And I think uh, this might be the perfect link from what you've just said in terms of uh, lust for life and baby being potentially on the edge and irresponsible. Uh, You've chosen New Race by Radio Birdman. I hadn't heard it. It's fantastic. It's like the Ramones. It is fantastic. It's like, I mean, it's punk, but not punk. Uh, But tell us about the song and why you chose it. There's a lot to choose from, from that era. And and the main reason, because I knew these guys, they were pals uh, in 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 a city, and some of us gone to university, and the the main the main driving force of the band was a, an American guy called Dennis Tech, who was from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Rob Younger was was a singer. But these two guys were, uh, at, it was at a time when you know Australian music was very poppy and what have you, and this was like this was first wave punk, you know that's really what it was, and we were we were zealots. We went every night to every pub gig, and and. This was a wonderful, it was a wonderful era. Like everyone knew each other, we, we, you know, they, we would not miss a gig. And then a whole lot of other bands started around them. And then ultimately that led me into Phantom Records. Yeah, t- tell us about that, about, your, about setting it up and your time uh, there. Well, it was just that era. There were a lot of indie bands. There were bands everywhere and every pub had live music. So the, the, it was hard to avoid. It's kind of hard to imagine now when you look out desolate that landscape is but um the other thing that was going on at the time were the import record stores because you could buy legitimate records not bootlegs in either la or london and they would be air freighted and be on the shelves here the record industry here was run by some big conglomerates and they weren't interested in releasing many records because there was too much stock and too much you know cutting costs so we could bring records in and you know i, I remember particularly the Dire Straits album came out and they and Festival or whoever it was wasn't going to release it. And we could sell boxes of it. So they started to sue us right. because right. we were because technically we're wrong because the records were coming from outside the copyright territory, but they were legitimate records. And so this whole thing went on about, you know, we're all these kind of scruffy people getting sued by these record companies. 
funny when you think about it now. It wasn't very funny at the time. But um, so there was a big energy there, like all of this, the music scene, the live music scene, the local bands, the, um, every, everything was going on. The, the picture you paint of that scene is, is wonderful, but you must have an entrepreneurial business bent to go, I'm going to get in to actually set up a record company. I mean, I mean it's one thing going to the gigs. It's another thing signing bands. Yeah, well, here's the thing, Nigel. It's actually not that hard. Right. Like, literally, you know a band. Have you got a recording? Yeah, yeah, we recorded something in the rehearsal studios. Yeah, there. You take that, you, you took it to, to Festival Records, who would make a demo or like <laughs> a, a test pressing of it. Yeah. You go, yeah, that's good. Like, can you make us 200 of them? And then you'd make a cover uh, at the printing place and then you put the record in the cover and you, hey, you got a record company. And that was... Like we didn't sign anyone up. They, they, you know, we put out the first record for the Hoodoo Gurus, the Hoodoo Gurus, as they were at the time, and that was all we wanted to do. Like we were not interested in signing up, you know, contractually obligated to some arrogant bloody wannabe rock star. And, and how long was it in between Phantom and Mambo? There was Phantom Textile Printers, which we had a printing company, which was like a we did contract work for. Um, for the rag trade, and it was all touring bands or whatever. And it was kind of, um, it's pretty horrible. I mean, it was, it, there were three shifts a day. It was, it was like proper industry, and I'm sort of hating it. And sort of Mambo came out of that because, you know, I knew all the surf brands. I knew, all, I knew everybody. I went, oh, I could do it better than that. So the idea of Mambo came from when I had the printing factory. You know, we were printing fabric there. We were printing all sorts of things. And... Uh, that it, it took off and so I split the two and went off and followed Mambo, which became a worldwide, you know, worldwide, yeah. worldwide brand. It's fascinating. I mean, researching you, Dare, uh, is someone said to you, about you to me, you're, you're a, a cultural whisperer, is to have throughout your career, it, it can't be luck if you do it again and again and again. How, what do you put it down to that you can have your sort of finger on the pulse in the right way that can be monetized and still loved and sustained. It's, it's incredibly impressive. To be honest, and I'm, I'm not being self-effacing here, but, I mean, look, you've you, you got to make money, otherwise you go broke. Like, you learn that pretty quick. And I watch lots of other people do that. A really good idea, but it was no business. So I think I've, I've been luckily been able to balance or instinctively been able to balance the passion and the excitement that makes the brand or the activity worthwhile versus it's got to make some money, you know, so to keep everything, keep people paid and keep the growth. Going. So when I, in my consultancy, when I talk to people who are running their businesses is we've all got to make compromises, but you have to protect the diamond at the core of whatever it is you're doing. And some people make the mistake of thinking they have to compromise and they compromise in the wrong place. So if you made a rubbish motorbike or, or, or signed a ridiculous band, that's not the right compromise. You might have to have one or two meetings you don't want to have. but Yeah, yeah well, often people will they come up with a really good idea, but then they'll get some sort of accounting partner who just goes, yeah, yeah, whatever about that. Just keep, just do the, you know, it, we, we, what matters is, you know, the financial side. And you go, well, no, you got to balance those too. And, and sadly, when I sold, I ended up selling Mambo uh, to a public company in 2000 and that been, and watched it sort of happen. Yep. And we went, well, you know, it's, you just do that culture thing, you know, like whatever. 
it's sort of it often doesn't work. And if you look around at all the great sort of entities that are brands or cultural identities, they usually have this very good balance between the creative person is always protected or, or respected by somebody who can make sure the business is on its feet. So, so it, it seems looking at your endeavours that that culture is really important, whether it's Deus or whether it's Mambo. Would you mind talking to that? Okay. Well, when I sold Mambo, I was 50, and I was, but I just figured like there was something I hadn't done yet that, that I really wanted to get to the heart of. And I've always, I, I, I've, I've always existed in this indie world where these obsessive people are obsessed by one thing, whereas I've always been far more of a generalist and I always like, and I had this sum of the parts idea that all these things should work together. And I remember in the surf industry, in when it first began, that good surfers always had a motorbike. And it wasn't to get to the beach. They were thrills. They both, there was a passion for both. And there was a guy from Newcastle called Herbie Jefferson, who's older than me, but he was Australian speedway champion and a uh, big wave surfer, a famous big wave surfer. Wow. And anyway, it was both. And that was it. That was like, Herbie, that's it's got to be. <laughs> and, and Herbie would say, "It's all the same juice, man. It's all the same juice." <laughs> and that was that was began to put in my head about how these things should. And in the end, for a good rich life, you should be doing all sorts of things and learn one thing should lead to another, and you should understand things. And I'd always disliked the kind of that really fundamentalist religious way of approaching a lot of things. You know, I'm a surfer, and I'm only going to go surfing. That's it. Or I'm a motorcyclist and I just ride motorbikes. That's it. And I go, well, come on, dude, you can do both. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no nothing says you can't. And and I remember from the seventies when people did that, but then the the culturally the things drifted off in a in a different way. It's all the same juice. What a brilliant uh, notion. There's someone else says to me that the best surfer is the one that smiles the most or whatever. It, you know, yeah. it's not about you know. I think people sometimes they get into something with a genuine passion and, and then they sort of lose their way of why you got into this to start with. But, but even when we got into motorbikes, well, in fact, if you'd like to ask me about my object choice. Uh, we will, but, but okay, before we, before we get there, okay, we're going <laughs> yeah. to segue to your place. So oh. you have chosen uh, your house in Bali. Uh, describe it and tell us why you've chosen it. Okay. Um, it's uh, just a bit of heaven there. The, I, I, been through the surf industry. I'd, I'd been going to Bali with a friend. We we built a house there, and we I'd go there quite a bit. And then it just came up in the in like early two thousands. Someone said, "Oh, you should go and see Aulia's house. He wants to sell it." And it was this beautiful teak wooden. It was like a giant cubby house. That's really the aesthetic was cubby house. It was like I'll put a staircase here. I'll just build something here. And I took my good friend who's an architect, one of my best friends, and he goes, Dare, this is a fucking disaster, <laughs> but I know why you like it. Because it's got it character. Is, because it's got character. And it is like a cubby house. Like when kids go in there, they go, oh, I just want to climb up here. I want to go all over the place. And that, and that's really what it was. And it was on, on a block of land in, in Chenggu. And um, so, yeah, we've been going there for quite some time. Is it on a surf beach or? Uh, it's not on the beach, no, but it's not far. It's not, but it's, uh, um, you don't want to be right on a beach in Bali. How long do you spend there? Is it six months it, on off? No, or is no, it... no, no, no. It's, it's I, go, I, I swear to God, I haven't really spent more than three weeks at a time in Bali. Ah. Yeah. But then again, I, did, I sort of did my procreating late in life and I had my 
first child when I was uh, when I was fifty two, and then and then I had a daughter as well after that. But but once you've got kids, they're going to school, and you know the whole, everything everything changes at that point. But you know, I was I was happy to do that. And well, t- talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about that transition. So you're living this sort of life that I'm, I imagine many men would sort of dream about and groan where they see you with a surfboard and a motorbike heading off into the sunset and then 50 settling down doing that father thing easy difficult or um you know it, i always said I, i'd wriggled out of it my whole life <laughs> Surely i was i was disgusting but <laughs> disgusting is probably too harsh a word but anyway i certainly wriggled out of it um and once i realized i was having a baby that was it i was having a baby something clicked yeah and I think I've been a very good father. And I often say to my kids, you know, you're the best thing that ever happened to me. And if it wasn't for you, I'd be this curmudgeonly old, indulged idiot wandering around, <laughs> you know, trying to find further amusements. But, <laughs> but, you know, the kids give you something else. Uh, so we're going to come on to the uh, the choice that you were keen to talk about, which is my favourite of the five choices on Five My Life. It's your possession. Uh, and you've chosen a 1942 Harley Davidson. Does it still work? I don't have the same bike. I have a, I have a 1942 Harley Davidson, which was the same as the one I had when I was at high school. What it was was I was at high school in Griffith. I was pretty naive, but I my sister had gone to university and she gave me Hunter S. Thompson's Hell's Angels book, and I read it. I said, "Boy, I was, I was impressionable." I can tell you, <laughs> and not that I wanted to be an outlaw biker. But it was just seemed to be full of all this stuff, all these bi- and I didn't even know what a Harley Davidson was at that stage, and um, but triumphs and drugs and rock and roll and what have you. I mean, it was just incredible. And I was walking down the main street of Griffith with my friend, and this local hoodlum went past on the bike, which is a 1942 WLA Harley, uh, and he said, oh, "Look at a Harley!" And he said, "Is that a Harley Davidson?" <laughs> and I actually went and bought it off him. But what happened in 1942, Harley-Davidson produced thousands and thousands of these bikes for the war effort. And a lot of them came down to Australia and they were still in warehouses in crates because they weren't used. And every schoolboy was, his, you know, his friends wanted to get together and all put in money and get one of these in crates of an old Harley and put it together. Um, it's a miracle I'm here because they are truly the most terrible motorbike. They, right, dangerous. The word ergonomics was not invented at that stage. <laughs> they have a foot clutch and a hand gear shift and they they have a rigid rear frame and they just bounce around like, uh, I mean, my mother had an expression that Jeeps, from the Second World War, that Jeeps killed more than the Japanese. Right. And I think what, what would have killed even more people were these, these Harleys because they were very, they were... But in the end, you you take to them, and they're, it, it's a skill you've got to learn to ride them. They're, they're not easy things to ride, and you know I had one for I rode it to university and I had it for a long time, and then more, more recently I've had a, I bought a couple through Deus, so I can still kick them over, ride them around. And is that how you get around uh, most often, or, or are you a car bus rider? I mean, do you? Uh, no, no, I I, I have a. I, while I have my 1942 Harley, I also have a, a new GS, BMW GS1200 and I ride that all the time. That's my, my main form of, of, uh, um, a main form of transport. But that, that bike, though, gave me my first passion for motorbikes. And even when I started Mambo, which was essentially a surf-oriented brand, yeah. that was the whole idea for Deus, was that I would 
bring this world of motorcycles and not to mention bicycles and everything. I mean, we literally live by this idea of the sum of the parts was the most important thing in your life. It's just an incredible uh, life to research. Now, someone told me that you called it Deus Ex Machina because you always wanted to have a company with sex in the title. Is that? I was <laughs> no, just fab. I hope that's true. That, 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 well, yeah, sadly not. I mean, it, it was it was just purely by coincidence. I, I remember when I wrote it up, I went, "Oh my god, it's a sex machine." No, that's, uh, uh, that that was a bit gratuitous. No, it was because it's Latin for God, God is from the machine, yeah. and I just love this idea of. Um, how, you know, the respect for the machine and the, the passion and the purity that comes out of things. That, that was really what it was. Though oddly enough, we'd, we'd got a lot of Christians coming and saying, is this, is this a Christian company? I go, no. We'd say, any God, any machine is fine with us. <laughs> so apart from planning your party, uh, what is keeping you busy uh, now and what does the future hold? Well, Deus is still a, I mean, I still have a lot of reasons why I want Deus to be successful. And, you know, we, this, the, this pandemic has not been helpful, but, you know, we're, we're, our French partners are building something in Bordeaux. There's um, um, a place just opened in Ibiza. There's, we've just opened an incredible place in uh, Korea, in Seoul, through, through our partners there. It's a beautiful building. Uh, our Japanese partners have opened something. So, we're, you know, like we're, there's a lot of things going on, and this idea is still working well. Um, and I think, I think the good thing, and like to say I figured this out, but it's more again more good luck than good management, is that Deus is is a lot of things that come together. If we were just some guys with a garage making a few motorbikes, we would have got sick of it by now and walked away. But um, but this thing keeps feeding on itself, and the ideas keep coming, and the the people that want to be involved keep coming. So. It gets, you know, keeps very interesting. So before I get to my last traditional question, I just want to ask, uh, what, if any, other brand do you uh, sort of admire? I'm a huge fan of Paul Smith. He's a great guy, loves what he does, loves his bicycles, loves motorbikes, um, but he's also very fashionable. And a a strong sense of humour runs through everything that he does. So to me, that's like the the, the essence. I hate the things that take themselves way too seriously. And so I'd say, you know, Sir Paul is the, uh, my sort of hero in that respect. It's interesting. I, I, I've met him a couple of times. Ah, nice yeah. bloke. Yeah, a terrific guy. Yeah. And he was, I, I was like, <laughs> like a fanboy when I went to London and someone who worked for me had met him in, in uh, he was wearing a Mambo t-shirt in one of his shops and he said, oh, I love that brand. He said, oh, I work there. So oh, you tell your boss to come and see me. And I went to see him in Floral Street in London. And he said, look at this. He opened a drawer and he had all of our swing tags in, with a rubber band around them. He'd collected them all. Wow. And he said, yeah, your yeah, swing tags are great. You know, too bad about the clothes. But, you know, <laughs> but, yeah, but so I, I was quite, um, quite taken by that. So back to your it, it's all the same juice uh, thought. It is, I, I see like sometimes a wallet that Paul Smith does and think that is Really, you open it up and it's got a picture of a mini on the leather or the Union Jack. Or a you go, semi-nude woman. That's like right. That. You go, do you know what? You, you, it's sort of I can't describe it, but I I feel I'm in safe hands. You know, with, with the stuff that you do and the stuff that he does. I don't, I don't know. I saw Paul Weller play recently. You go, you're, you've still got it. I, th- I suppose it's the purity at the core, where there's something that you actually believe in that's quite stylish and. Yeah, well, with the Paul Smith things, you look at it and you go, somebody cares about that. Yes. Like somebody, yeah, you know, they haven't just knocked it's it like, out. It's like, oh, this year's fashion is, you know, like, and that's what I've tried to do with all the, the brands is, 
keep to the things that we know about and that we care about. And the minute you become like a standard rag trade brand and go, this year's look is Guatemalan fabric, so everything's <laughs> got to be that. You yeah. know? And you, I, I've tried very hard not to do that. So, so we, I mean, I've spent two decades in the marketing industry and what sometimes people misunderstand is you are allowed to lead. You haven't got mm. to follow consumer trends. Yeah. You can actually, if you've got a bit of style and, and oomph about you, set them. But the accountant will come and go, oh, look, it'd be safer if you just, everyone seems to want that, so you better make, why don't you just make that? Yeah. And you go, well, if we did that, we'd just be one of the pack doing <laughs> the same thing. So um, that's why we try not to do that. Well, mate, you're looking very well on it. I'm going to have to come to my uh, sixth traditional question. Uh, so Remo chose you, for which I'm very, very grateful. Uh, who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next and why? Um, oh, well, you know, uh, my good friend Greg Pickover, H.G. Nelson. H.G. Nelson. We will get him on. Why would you like to hear him? Because oh, he's a, just a, a force of nature, like an extraordinary person. And he and uh, John Doyle... Roy Slavin have done, you know, with their, they've been doing their um, bludging on the blind side. And and they're still there. They're all in their 70s. They're old men now, but they are still just as funny as they were the day that they started, whatever, 30 something years ago. And, and they still love things. They're still passionate about everything. They only talk about stuff that they want to talk about. They're, you know, they're not, nobody tells them what to do, they just do what they want to do. And I, I just find them, and, and I'm very blessed that uh, HG is a, real, is a very good friend. I go and have coffee with him and I have my own little Roy and HG sitting on a coffee shop. <laughs> and and he, he's just the most curious mind. He has a, this extraordinary curiosity about everything. When I hear him, uh, one of the charming things is he sounds like he's enjoying himself, which is very appealing. Oh, they do. When they're laughing, they're laughing. That's right. It's, it's not forced it's DJ really, laugh. Yeah, r- really funny. Yeah, there's not. Uh, and I think, uh, I mean, it, 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 I just, I love it. And we're so black. Just this, the bludging on the blind side has come back on. It's two hours on a you know midday on Saturday, and it's hilarious. It just, and they, and they taught me something really good in the in the original days, that they take the piss out of things, but only because they like those things. Like if someone's just a smarty, smart ass who's making fun of something I don't really understand, that's not very funny. Whereas someone who cares about something and, and the jokes that they make are, are, are knowledgeable, then I think that makes that elevates the humour a lot. Dear Jennings, it's been fabulous to hear you discuss your choices on Five My Life. Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. Listener.